morning, everybody. Hope y'all are having a great day, or could be afternoon, depending on when you're listen, listening to this. Um, yeah, I got a quick announcement for you. Seek Outside is dropping our first kind of uh, full-length film um, on the YouTube channel. Um, so make sure y'all go check it out. It's starring uh, yours truly and Austin, who works here at Seek Outside. Uh, it was his first turkey hunt. Um, we took some e-bikes in. Uh, we were set up in camp with the 12 men um, and the Guardian, and we had a lot of fun. So y'all should go over to the YouTube page and check that out. It's out now. Um, we'd really appreciate it. And let us know what you think. It's our first one, so we, we always love feedback. Um, but yeah, anyway, we got the episode podcast episode with Adam Gall coming up. He's a local guide here uh, on the western slope of Colorado. Super knowledgeable. I really enjoyed this podcast like a lot. Um, we had some really good conversations, so hope y'all enjoy. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. And then you should, you think that's bad? See Ryan on the phone in the office. Some people are just wired that way. It's really respectable for it's, sure it's funny because when i first heard that album can i swear on this yes oh, you yeah. can yeah. okay <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> yes yeah. absolutely we when i first heard that album i uh you know it was first when i was kind of really getting into music it was like post high school i was probably 19 high school i'd only really How listened to uh 27 just turned 27 oh, had to think God. about it <laughs> um but uh but you know i, I had you know i didn't know all these bands and yeah i heard that and i thought it was jimmy page singing lead vocals oh i was like why was robert plant the singer <laughs> right. about <Jimmy> yeah. this <laughs> but, guy's so good yeah this guy's so good but yeah chris right yeah the robinson brothers yeah great well we're recording so okay <laughs> this is not a music podcast although it can be if we want it to be it's whatever you guys want yeah it's, yeah it's wherever it goes exactly but um but yeah, we got we're here at Seek Outside headquarters with uh, Adam Gall. Um, oh. That's the other voice that you're hearing besides myself and Lee. Um, the better sounding voice of the three. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> <For sure>. exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, why don't, why don't you give us a little little uh, background on on what you do, your guiding yeah. service, and all that good stuff? Okay. Um, Whole life story in five minutes. Yeah, start the timer. Um, well, yeah, thank you for having me this is cool yeah um, absolutely yeah. like yeah. seek outside kevin and angie are i've always enjoyed them for sure so mm -hmm. uh yeah i i guess the main thing currently is uh owner and operator along with my wife anna um, of timber to table guide service which is here in western colorado um and then kind of under the umbrella of timber to table guide services dark timber outfitters so those two outfits sort of go hand in hand. We mostly guide elk hunts. Um, the bulk of them take place up on the Uncompagre Plateau, Unit 61 and 62, which for those of you listening, that's like the southwest, kind of southwest central part of Colorado. Um, and yeah, the timber to table hunts, which is kind of where we got our start. Those are 
focused on food and education uh, as far as getting new hunters involved. Um, my wife's a really good, she's a very talented processor. She's really a mm. phenomenal butcher. Um, really? So Which is something like you don't, like I I feel like I learned uh, like a like a beef cut like so like a cut of meat on a, on like an actual beef cattle um which was the oh gosh you're trying to think of yeah a specific to, cut like yeah a, like, like a t-bone or a ribeye yeah 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 it, but it's so it's like right above the ribs not necessarily get into backstrap territory hmm. but it's like i watched it on master chef because my wife is a master chef above the, the ribs it's like a it's like a it's not like a it's a something tip i want to say but it's not a tri-tip right hmm. like i know what a tri-tip is. yeah that's down hind quarter yeah um man I, I don't know why i can't remember it now can i finish my five minutes <laughs> yeah yeah you <laughs> yeah. can but um, I'm, I'm saying that like that's that's pretty special because not a lot like even i, I yeah i just kind of like chop things up honestly. i'm, not, I'm yeah. not good at it either yeah. like but she's done a lot. She used to work at a processors in Paonia, and that's where she got her background. So she's mm. done like hundreds and hundreds of animals. And I've only, you know, I've done a few, and I could work my way through it, but she's on a different level. So Timber to Table kind of came to be with me wanting to guide, have our own outfit, but be able to employ some of the the, the talent and skills that she had. And so that's when we sort of had this idea of, me teaching folks the field component of, of hunting and skills and ethics and whatnot. And then if they're successful, then Anna can, in our barn, we process it with the hunter uh, to kind of get the whole the timber to table. The whole experience, um, yeah. So that's what timber to table is. They're all late season cow hunts primarily. And then dark timber outfitters, like I was saying, that sister deal. That's more of what you'd think of as like a traditional it's your yeah, archery yeah, muzzleloader rifle exactly. season mm -hmm. yeah okay over-the-counter bull hunts lee's been up there um, nice. and yeah. that's kind of it fits more of the the standard bill of of what people think of with an outfitter yeah, yeah. So. which the lodge is pretty sweet too yeah, yeah i've just seen pictures did a lot of, of really good work with the lodge I, I would i would uh dare to say it was pretty sweet staying up there yeah it's not um it's not the ritz carlton it's like an off-grid cabin but it's in a sweet location like you can hunt right from the from the cabin there basically hey, that's the ritz carlton to me man. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what i'd rather have yeah I'd rather have that than a, a pool out front that's for sure right no it works for what it is is how i say it to people it's, yeah it's not fancy but it, it works for what we do up there so 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 i got one, i got a couple questions for you regarding kind of the stuff that you just said the first one is butchering I feel like is a very underappreciated art, even by me. Like I, I am ashamed to admit, I really don't know much about butchering. I've processed a few animals, but you know, back in my earlier days of hunting, we just take it to the, to the game processor. They, yeah. they give us our meat back and steaks or whatever hamburger. Um, I would say the last four years, um, you know, my, my parents, they got a bunch of game processing stuff. So, I just basically go over to their house, anything I get, and I'll just vacuum, you know, cut everything up, make burger, make sausage, uh, package it up. But um, you really, like, I used to think of butchering as 
oh, it's it's easy. We're just paying these people to do it because we don't want to we don't want to do it. You know, we don't have time mm-hmm. or whatever. But it really is an art to to like, especially when you start trying to break down like a rear quarter or something like that. Yeah. Um, you you realize you're like man this is this is much harder like this is there's some technical cuts that you got to make to i mean i guess you can make it as easy or as hard as you want but um anyway it's it's definitely an underappreciated art my question to you is did you notice with your wife being a master butcher if you will yeah have you noticed um that there's an increased quality of your food or like like what what uh yes. what are the big benefits of having like a, a master butcher in yeah. in the family no that's a good question um yeah there, i think there is a difference um just in turn and it to back up a little bit it it starts with what you're doing in the field um which i think can also get overlooked as far as how you're handling the meat and taking care of it you're not getting it full of rocks or dirt or grass or junk ground into into your meat that you got to deal with Um, (laughs) we we messed up on that one this year (laughs) (laughs) i mean sometimes it happens it happens just based on circumstances but but starting with a clean product goes a long way getting it cooled down quick and yeah then once you're into the actual processing of it um i think there are little things that might get overlooked as far as you know if if you run the blade of your knife this way through this particular cut you can avoid this tendon or this chunk of silver skin that uh, might be embedded in the meat that you're then gnawing on and thaw it out and yeah. cook it. Um, and, and knowing where those lines of tissue and connective tissue run. Um, I mean, it's not it's not rocket science on one hand because it's like people have been doing it for eons. You know, sure. Cutting it's anatomy. Up, cut, cutting up animals and eating it. It's It's not rocket science. But to your point... There is an art. There's a skill, and one thing, yeah, I should Anna should be here. But well, I think um, it's like a, I think it's kind of like a lost art nowadays. You know, yeah, not as many people do it. But one of the things she always says to folks is, um, as you do this more, you know, she has her way. She was taught, and she does it a certain way. And then over time, she's kind of created her own way of doing it. And you're gonna do that, and you're gonna do that, and everybody's yep. gonna have their own little subtle differences in how they go about that craft of, mm-hmm. of processing and, and butchering up the animal into the, the cuts they want. But to answer your question, yes, I do think there's a difference in, in how the, how the meat tastes or just how it, how it cooks and yeah. how yeah. you eat it for the better. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. when you have someone that knows what they're doing yeah. with, oh, with sure. a knife. Yeah. So. I, I feel like the biggest thing that I've noticed that just something simple that, I've noticed increases the quality of your meat is just letting it sit for, oh yeah, you know, four or five days in a in a cool place. It's or, or it's, fourteen. Like, yeah, that's what we do with our animals. really we fourteen them, days. Yeah, huh? we let them hang. Yeah, for we, a while. yeah, that's what that's what we did with that elk this year. Is we hit the fourteen fourteen, 14 days. Day it's unbelievable that it's you can cut it with just a dull spoon. Really, what I always say, mm-hmm. man. Yeah, and it was. Might it was have to do that. It's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, it's phenomenal. But uh, that was you know that's something that you just don't know what you're missing until you till you know that you're missing it <laughs> so yeah. i we're big pushers of aging meat to nice. to circle back so i don't forget it's called a rib cap 
what huh. I was thinking of. Hmm. I've never and it's so it's a little on, piece me, of meat yeah, right me, off the rib. Let me read this. Uh, the cap of ribeye or the rib cap is the outer muscle of the beef ribeye roll, the subprimal where ribeye steaks and prime rib are sourced. Um, this is located in the rib primal, which covers rib six through rib 12 and is between the chuck and loin, loin primals. Uh, the specific muscle that make up this cut is the spinalis dorsi. They have hmm. a diagram. I mean, I'm, um, kind of, I'm kind of following yeah, what they're saying. Let me but. see. They don't have a diagram right here. Let me, let me look. Diagram. Oh, just over there. Yeah, head. I've, I've just <laughs> never heard. And that's another thing Anna says, too, is uh, which you can get from books or posters or diagrams. There's like three or four different names for every cut of meat out there. Like, ah, yeah, really? What, what somebody calls a rib cap, someone else will call a rib roll or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's, this um, is a very poor image, but you can ascertain where it comes from. Because oh, okay. this is like the yeah. whole rib eye, right? Yep. And so the rib cap looks like to be the outer. It's that top piece. Top. The cap. The cap. Gotcha. And so... What Master Chef said was that it's uh, when you order it in the form of like wagyu, you know, Japanese specialty uh, steak. It's like the most expensive steak in the in the world that you can get. Really? I don't know. That's what Gordon Ramsay says, but I don't know if I trust <laughs> that guy. I don't know, man. Elk tenderloin's tough. Yeah, that's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> all that, I gotta that's say. True, yeah. Tenderloin <laughs> mm-hmm. or backstrap, man. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm more of a backstrap guy myself. But um, is it just because the tenderloins just aren't big enough? You want no, the whole? Yeah, like, I just want to eat the whole the thing, whole backstrap, all yeah. in one sitting. Yeah, yeah. We've gotten really into um. Anna does this shank, uh, shank recipe, which uh, she sort of modified from Hank Shaw's book Buck Buck Moose. There's mm-hmm, a couple of good yeah. shank recipes in there, but yeah, that to me when when given the time, oh man. Yeah, it, it, it's as good as backstrap and tenderloin. Yeah, it's so, so delicious. Well, I think when you say when given the time is important because I tried one. Um, you can't rush it. No, and I totally screwed it up the first time I made it, and I made it for like people the first time I like I didn't make it for just me and my oh. wife, and I was like, oh, wasn't well received. Em- embarrassing. No, it wasn't well received. I'm sorry. Um, uh, yeah, I was. Just, I was like, man, that's embarrassing. But uh, the second one I did, which was just for my wife and I was much better and I gave it yeah so six, much more six eight hours yeah so much yeah. more time to cook I think the first one I only gave it four hours yeah and so you know I, I had I had it kind of cranked up a little bit higher um which was probably a lot of my issue but uh yeah, yeah. um so you guys are talking about dutch oven or or like crock pot right with that six to eight hours mm-hmm. yeah have you have Either of you guys tried doing that same recipe in a pressure cooker? Yeah, Anna did. She kind of split it. She did a little, or no, did she? She might have done a part of it in the crock pot and then realized we were a little crunched for time, and she did Instapot. Yeah. And it, yeah. Was, did, it was money. Yeah. It was good. So that, for me, would be the biggest investment somebody could make in, in cooking because – yeah. Those we, Instapots are amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we have one. Yeah, we use it all the time. Oh, it's so amazing. And we did a little kind of experiment this this spring with uh, with both my brothers and mine, tur- my turkey. I have an Instapot. He has a crock pot. 
and you know we were doing the turkey legs which are mm-hmm. notoriously tough something mm-hmm. that you typically in a crock pot you're cooking four to six hours you know just to get it to that point he did his in a crock pot took about eight hours to get it to the point where it was you know fall off the bone right hour 15 in an instapot tasted delicious fall off the bone wow so yeah uh, but i was just curious if if you had noticed that there was like a quality difference in taste or anything like I don't, that i don't think so and maybe yeah. anna would would say otherwise but i i couldn't tell um i should I, I will say two nine times out of ten we do it in the crock pot yeah like start it in the morning and just let yeah. it let yeah. it go but yeah well, did she uh did she like um cut them up into like um like no. medallions or she just left it kind of whole on the bone like we basically bone, yeah. when we when we process the elk you know you got the shanks and it's just i finally wisened up and got a sawzall that is like battery powered and just yeah. cut them into sections and that's what goes like yeah. bone, bone in yeah oh, so you thing. so you but you did cut it into smaller portions but still on the bone yep because i've seen some people do like pucks of it you know still on the bone but they they do like literally like a hockey puck oh like the asabuco type of thing yeah Yeah, no we do the whole kit and caboodle and we usually get we'll cut each shank into two pieces typically so you get you know eight eight per elk i don't know if you could do that with deer um it might you might only just do the whole deer shank so four of them i guess so so you're talking like on an elk you cut it in half like long ways no through, no through so like yeah. through the bone of the okay the lower leg but basically. you're not you're not doing pucks like no nope. you're not okay no you medallions just, or discs it's, okay so you just cut it in cut half it in half and then okay. that's each of those becomes a meal i see what you're and saying it's a lot i mean you get a there's a lot of elk, yeah, yeah, yeah it's a lot yeah. compared to a deer it's not it's something you know yeah. yeah when you look at those um like the connective tissue on their their knees and their ankles and stuff it's like god like no wonder they can oh do what they do what they do (laughs) talk talk about uh, wild turkeys right they depend on their two legs you you get inside of one of those legs there's so many different Mm -hmm. bones yes it's crazy yeah um regarding meat processing with your clientele um have you noticed that there's like one cut of meat or one piece of an animal that um people typically don't take that you're always like man you got to take that because that's great table fare yeah another good question um the shanks are definitely yeah. something yeah that i think historically it's grind yeah, yeah like that's yeah. and we were the same way until we started messing around with them so shanks are one that often get overlooked i always try to push people on heart mm-hmm. uh, but you know i would say the majority that maybe an even strong majority just or no, I'll just say majority. They're not interested in it. And mm-hmm. There's something about it where they're like, eh, not so much. I think heart's phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Like the same thing when you do it right, you get all the yeah. connective tissue. And yeah. So shanks, heart, um, that might be it as far as everything else from there is kind of straightforward. Most, yeah, yeah. Most one well, yeah the the thing with heart is people think of it as an organ right and yeah. it's associated with like a stomach right because that's like your typical organ but just it's a straight muscle yeah it doesn't look i mean if you were to cut it up put it in tacos you couldn't tell yeah any no. difference i think uh, it i always describe it as it's like uh it's 
it's meat taste with almost like a, a liver texture. Yeah, it, it does have a little bit mm-hmm. chewier it's kind different. of texture. But it's yeah. good. It tastes good. And, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah, and we don't get too much into the – we've had a few hunters that, you know, they want the kidneys, they want the call fat. You know, they, they're all in, Yeah, which is cool. Um, but that I would say with the folks that we get, that's um, – exception and not the norm yeah um, as i say do you have many many uh clients taking the liver home uh, yeah i would say same thing probably half, probably um, half. Oh, I, that's actually a lot better than i thought it yeah would be, you know? and i'm but always surprised because i'm not a li- i'm not a liver guy me, yeah. me neither. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've tried i've tried my best to be a liver guy yeah. i just can't yeah. do it yep well so. um doc hillary hillary lamper says to instead of just trying to eat it like liver and onions type of deal to like dehydrate it, powder it up, and just um, take them, take the them capsules. As, jerky yeah, and just or get like you can get like gelatin capsules. Oh, oh like yeah, make it. Yeah, yeah, and just and just take liver pills every day. If the, if you know if you're like oh I want the the benefits of eating liver, but you just can't eat liver. Yeah, she that's, says that that's the way to do it. I'd yeah. have to refresh myself on the benefits. Is it iron? Right? Iron and uh, got to be. Some there, there's some all, B also, vitamins or something. Yeah, like yeah, that, and probably. there's some like, um, uh, um, you know, like immune support there. Oh, okay. mm-hmm. um, you know what else has a lot of B vitamins? Bang vitamin energy. B. Yeah, bang energy. <laughs> bang energy. Yeah, B vitamins. <laughs> you know what else has a lot of iron? Spinach. <laughs> I do like spinach. Yeah, I, lo- I love spinach. Um, so one question I've always wondered, um, when considering like professional butchers and stuff, when I'm, when we're like getting ready, getting our, our burger pile ready, a lot of times there's a lot of pieces with white skin in there, Hmm. right? Or silver skin. Silver skin, yeah. You put that through the grinder. In my experience, even if you kind of freeze the meat a little bit it it gets clogged up in there yeah what what are you typically doing what are you guys doing when you're making burger to get around that problem are you just trimming everything or is there or can you mitigate that with making proper cuts on your other pieces of meat yeah we we do we're i would say we're sticklers on the silver skin for sure like we definitely take time to try and remove as much of it as possible and that's one thing with new hunters or people that uh it's something that you can kind of take for granted just knowing how to handle a, a knife how to hold a knife um and that's something that you kind of have to work with some of the newer hunters with is how how they're holding the knife so yeah. they're so they're not taking a, a half inch deep mm-hmm. cut yeah. into yeah. the meat and and losing a lot of meat yeah. so you gotta be a little bit careful with what you're asking there but to answer your question, yes, we try to remove as much silver skin as possible. When we know it's going to be going into the grind pile, though, we're a little more lax on that. Um, and temperature, as you just mentioned, helps a lot as far as it and that stuff not getting as clogged up yeah. in, in the auger of the grinder. Do you do you freeze your components of your of your grinder i've heard people do that no we have not done we have a huge grinder though so it's um yeah i'm sure that can help with a lot of it if you yeah. just have more horsepower it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. like a three horsepower grinder oh really yeah, yeah it does, it does yeah. burger pretty quick yeah. um i think the one i've always used is like half half a horsepower yeah which is so. great and those <clears> are fine um but yeah i think removal of as much of that connective tissue beforehand and then we try to cut it up 
like into you know whatever well cubes yeah big enough to cubes. fit yeah yeah, yeah. okay maybe a little bigger than that but yeah just so it it can handle um going through there a little easier so i was just curious because i knew like my dad's always like oh you gotta trim all the silver skin off before it goes in the grinder i'm like man i just feel like that's not the way that like you would think that butchers at a butcher shop that's trying to maximize their productivity especially during hunting season they get a ton of animals mm-hmm. you would think that they would not, not care so time. much about yeah. yeah so i was like man there's it, it's got to be something we're doing yeah i think yeah it, kind of it's, a, it's personal preference for sure um again we're we lean more towards removing as much of the silver skin as possible but the other thing that we have going for us is we're just working with one hunter. Yeah. We're, not, we're not in a commercial situation. Yeah. Where it's like we got to crank out 15 elk a day. So get cutting and leave that silver skin. It's fine. Yeah. So we got a little bit of a luxury there uh, just in terms of um, scale Yeah. that we're working on. So would you say that sharp knives are probably the yes. the, the <laughs> biggest investment you can make sharp, if you're trying to butcher your own game? For sure. Sharp knives, good cutting, like big cutting boards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, again, I'm speaking through the lens of elk. Um, if it's just deer, obviously it's, you know, you can do it in your kitchen, but elk are hindquarters, big thing. Yeah. It's the know, size so. of a whole and I deer. Think, <laughs> I think people yeah. underestimate like how long it takes and yeah. they oh, get, yeah. and they get, uh, fatigued. It's like, it's hard work. Halfway, yeah. it takes a long time. It's yeah. exhausting. Even with two people yeah. to break down a whole elk, yeah, and get it from an an animal laying on the ground to a bunch of packages in your freezer. It takes a long time. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. yeah, having having sharp knives, having um, a variety of knives, and that's something Anna kind of goes through with the hunters at the start. Is you know, here's a boning knife. Here's you know, more of a like a fillet or skinning knife. Um, just kind of going th- and having a, a variety of tools there to break apart joints yeah. and cut heavy, yeah. heavy tendons and, and I think that's another good point is like a lot of people want to be like, what's the one knife I need to buy? Yeah, what's, buy, buy a few. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, got buy multiple. Mm-hmm. Don't buy the, don't try to buy a one size fits all because it's not going to fit all. It's yeah. going to. Yeah. And have a sharpener. That's the other thing. Like you yep. were saying, people get tired and the reason they get tired is instead of making one cut to get that silver skin off or to remove that cut of meat, you know, an hour later or whatever, they're They're exactly, they're sawn. They're making 10 cuts to one and they don't think about it, but it's like, you're wearing yourself down by Mm -hmm. doing that. And then, you know, then you slip or what, you know, yeah. And sharp sharp tool is a safe tool. And a lot of times (laughs) people do it over a too short of a table. Is, and now I've done it for a long time. And then you got to move the quarterback. Well, and then yeah, Well, yeah, and you're like bent over, right? Oh, so yeah, So you, yeah, yeah. you spend a few hours bent over slightly at the waist. Yeah. And then all of That's a sudden a good you're point. Going, oh, that was man. The first, that was one of the first things we did. We got our cutting tables, like like good stainless steel cutting tables. And I set, you know, built them, set them up in the barn. And Anna came out and immediately was like, they need to be four inches higher, (laughs) (laughs) which I would have never, because I would have just been like, that's fine. Just clean Mm -hmm. the meat, you know, cut it up, da, da, da. But having it up there where you're standing up straight. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. We, we didn't build anything, but we rigged something to just keep our table up. Yeah. I just, I just made little four by four blocks and 
you know, did a little cut into the block and set the table legs into them with a the paddle bit. Yeah. And, we we just took a milk crate and just set it on. <laughs> no <laughs> hey, power tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Works. Um, got to do what you got. Some do. NRS straps. Yeah. Duct yeah. tape. Yeah, yeah, it's not as professional <laughs> as yours. I can guarantee you. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably yeah. not. It, but yeah, it's it that's a big deal because I mean, I learned that, you know, you know, on multiple occasions, and it took me multiple occasions to be like, hmm, I should probably stop doing that. You mm. know, I should probably get a table and have it up higher. Well, we, last year, we, when we went up to Alaska, we had to just debone it. We didn't do the whole process, but we had to debone three caribou in an airplane hangar last year with diesel fuel fumes flying all around. And <laughs> Were they hung? No, no. It was like we had, to, we had to makeshift the table. We, I sacrificed my ground tarp as our cutting table. Because I didn't have anything there. But, Sweet. you know, we were about to fly out with all this stuff. And we had to like cut down the weight as much weight as possible. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that was that was when I was like, yep, yeah, yeah, having good getting having a good spot to do this is, right. I mean, yeah, we, we would have taken a milk cart at that time. Just yeah. <laughs> raise the table up. Yeah. But that's, like, hard because you're yeah. somewhere else. You know, it's not like yeah. you're at home right, and have sure. the option of using a table yeah. or using your counter. Yeah. But yeah, um, so I kind of want to switch gears here uh, to more of the the guiding side. Mm-hmm. When did you start guiding? Uh, twenty ten. Twenty ten. Yes. Is that when you guys bought the outfit, or were you? No, know? no. I just started. Um, I got my neighbor um, Josh Cranson helped me get a job um, at this ranch that he was working at, just out of Paonia. Um, what ranch was it? The Barzi X is what it's called. It sits right at the base of the Raggeds. They're okay. kind of, they might be a little more known for their uh, fishing. They got a bunch of trout ponds scattered. Mm. That's a beautiful oh, okay. location. I've just, uh, what would that be, north of Paonia Reservoir? E- or south. Yeah, it's south. Towards towards Carbondale? Yeah, it's right. Yeah. Um, you turn right past paint like where the state park is at the head of Paonia Reservoir. Yep. You turn yep. in there and wind up um, and you go up right, literally right to the base of the rag. It's a beautiful location. Um, so anyways, I got a job guiding there, did that for a few years um, and then kind of started branching more into some wilderness stuff, working with horses and mules um, on public land and, and did that for a few different outfitters there in the West Elks. And then all the while kind of keeping a mental check on like, well, if I were doing this, I would do it that way. Or yeah. I, I would continue doing it like they're doing it with this. And, and then, yeah, eventually got to the point where it's like, I should shut up and put my money where my mouth is. And, <laughs> um, and so we did. And then I think 2015 is when we started doing the timber to table hunts. And that was just on a neighbor's piece of land. Yeah. Um, that gets, a fair number of elk that dropped down in the winter time. Um, and we did a few hunts that first year and then got a web page, kind of started putting the word out there. And then all of a sudden it was, um, demand quickly outstripped, uh, opportunity. And that's when I was like, we need to, need to buy a permit, (laughs) you know, on public land where we can, we can 
have more of a, a volume, like be able to actually make this a viable business. So, um, so yeah, 2010 is when I started. I think 2015 is when Timber to Table happened, and then 2016 or 2017, I think it was 2016 that we picked up the permit on the mm. on Compagre Plateau for dark timber. So, and that's where it currently is. I'd love to be able to to grow it, um, but man, finding a permit is hard it's hard and then you know trying to do private land leasing is just astronomically expensive so still still trying to explore those avenues because we're we're getting a lot of interest from folks that i just i'm turning away which is frustrating it's not it's not a good business model (laughs) um but at the same time it's sometimes it's like you know this is what we have yeah yeah you can't out out step your what you can do you can't bite off more than you can chew because then you get into staffing issues and so anyways it's uh that's where we are currently what's (laughs) what's the what's the process like what's the timeline look like on getting a permit to guide on wilderness or national forest and i'm sure there's it's a little different right on wilderness and national forest um no, not not no? not too much. No, okay. not to my knowledge, at least. I mean, you got to have some different things in place uh, as far as wilderness requirements. Yeah, like mm-hmm. logistically, logistically, you like, your, your hay. Like if you're you know if yeah. you're using stock, you got to have weed-free certified. And um, so there's a few subtle differences, but it's still national forest typically, or or yeah. BLM. Like if you're working on a BLM wilderness, which is not real common, but there are a few out there. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as obtaining the permit, to my knowledge, it nowadays it pretty much comes down to knowing someone that is selling out, like it, an outfitter's retiring, or they're they're quitting, they're ready to move on, and and that permit area now becomes available mm. um, through a through a transaction. Technically, with the Forest Service permits don't hold value so you can't sell it what you sell is the value of the tack and mm. the the cabin or yeah, whatever the, yeah, or, the or the client list yeah. like well this client list has it's worth two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever you know that mm-hmm. but every it's just kind of a facade like everybody knows the permit has value yeah, the permit. yeah. it's just the government yeah. won't say it yeah it's like yeah. no you can't sell that it transfers from one person to the next but what i'm getting at is it's very rare i think nowadays that the forest service will be like oh ryan and lee you guys want to start an outfit we'll go on the the map here for you know lolo national forest or yeah. gunnison national forest and and draw you know an area uh, where you'd like to permit where there currently isn't an outfitter and we'll get you set up they don't do that anymore really? yeah or it's very rare i should say that they do that because a lot of it is taken up with current permits and also i think they they want to make sure that not every single acre of public ground is leased out to an is, outfitter. that's yeah. that's a good call so yeah it is um yeah. it's a good balance i think well, that, and it, like keeps you know outfits from guiding over one another yeah, um, yeah, and, and they will set permit boundaries, you know, like I can only go out to the Dave Wood Road and Old Highway 90 and Divide Road, like creeks or ridges or roads, they'll set for the Forest Service. BLM just gives you the whole unit. They're just like, They're have at it, huh? It, pretty much, and I, I don't <laughs> really like that, but I have 
knock on wood, haven't had any issues with it. But instead of being like, Ryan, you have this area of Unit 62, and you know, don't go beyond Spring Creek. Lee, your starts on the other side of Spring Creek. You don't cross it. Man, guiding guiding is so interesting from a person that's never done it, right? Because I could imagine it being so hard like especially if you have like a newer hunter or something like that that um obviously doesn't know half of what you know and Mm -hmm. you know maybe you have an elk out in front of you you know maybe it's a really nice bull that you never see on a over-the-counter unit or something like that and uh i could see it being super frustrating trying to guide them right yeah um what what are the what are some of the big lessons that you've learned in that aspect while guiding yeah that's a good yeah another good question um and the first thing that pops into my head is uh like from the first minute you know in in interacting with that hunter over the phone or in email uh being in the right headspace for them and knowing um like you just said they they've never done this before mm-hmm. they've never i mean we get some hunters that have never fired a rifle until we go to the range together like they're that wow. they're that green um and they're you know that isn't a knock at all yeah. uh, on that person it's just it's something they've never done before um so having it in your head that you got to take things at a really elementary level and and no question is a bad question no question is a stupid question um in fact i like it when they ask those questions because that means they're comfortable and they're relaxed and they're not nervous about asking me or anna something or or one of our guides up on the plateau um and we do deal with a lot of new folks and yeah to your example or your point it does get reflected in at the end of the year our success rate Mm -hmm. you know if you will because there are situations where yeah if we had a more maybe a more experienced hunter they would have known what to do because the guide can't always be right next to them talking Mm -hmm. them through everything they need to do sometimes they're they're gone or they have to step back in order to call or, or whatever the case might be um but i'm fine with that like would it be great if every hunter killed an elk? Absolutely, that would be awesome. But that's a that's not reality with elk hunting, most of the time. And <laughs> and and b, I mean, sometimes you have a really great season and everything comes together. But oftentimes, you know, that not everyone's going to go home with a, with a punch tag. And b, I think it's um, it's important to just try to kind of be at their level as best you can. Um, and not not have an attitude like well i i know more than this person yeah and it's like well if, if you know more than talk them through it like yeah let them ask questions answer their questions tell them why you're doing what you're doing that's like i say with those a lot of our hunts we try to make them as educational as possible um so they're not stumbling around like they don't have a clue why brandon our guide is calling or not calling or why he wants the hunter to sit here instead of there um so yeah just being patient i think and recognizing that they're they're new to it they're eager and that's one thing i do like about having new hunters is 
I've said this in other in other discussions with folks. Like they get excited about seeing a fresh pile of elk shit, you know, yeah. which is awesome. Like yeah. versus, you know, someone that that doesn't. They've seen it enough. Jaded they, old, they, yeah, old, a little bit. You uh, know, I mean, so it's old. yeah, it's um, it's just different, you yeah. know, and it, it makes it cool from a guide standpoint that something as simple as that gets people excited and sort of reinvigorates a little bit of that in you that that passion for it or just the knowledge or, or the the thirst for knowledge yeah. i guess so when you bring up thirst for knowledge that reminds me of a conversation i had with a gentleman in Mon- all the way up in montana this is the year after i was um i was up at your place up okay. on the plateau yeah so whole almost a whole year i guess it was the summer after your guiding the the your guiding season uh-huh. um uh man i wish i could remember this guy's name my memory is not treating me very well today um dad brain yeah dad brain um but uh you know we were at this thing called the western hunting summit which is put on by ryan and hillary lampers and it's Oh, I've heard of that. It's created to... I've heard good things about it, I think. I I would, uh, you know, I would promote it, like, on just not even as a Seek Outside employee, because we have a very good relationship with Ryan Lampers. He's been running our stuff. He's purchased our stuff at at full price, you know, and and so, like, we have a very good relationship with him. Um, But even on a personal level, just from having went there... I was there to, again, do photo and video and, and you know, capture things to then package up into, into videos to send to the folks who had attended so they could rewatch seminars or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. So, anyway, so I'm at the Western Hunting Summit, and we're doing one of the, the hikes because um, we sometimes would go and stay overnight and then come back down to the lodge, and then that's where we would do all the seminars. So we're on this hike up. And I'm talking to this guy and he's from Denver. I'm like, Oh, cool. You know, getting to know him, you know, how long have you hunted? he's like, well, I just started last year. And I was like, great. You know, how was your first season? And he goes, it was awesome. I shot a really nice six point. I was like, (laughs) that's good for you. That's great. And he's like, yeah, but he was broke off on one side. And I was like, Hmm, that's kind of you know kind of crazy to have like a com- almost completely broke off and then six point on the other uh-huh. um i said you know like if you don't mind me asking like you t- did it alone like if it's your first and he goes no i was at i was at uh dark timber outfitters he was at your outfit well, oh is it uh ben it is ben yes ben Tech. Not, yeah <laughs> no yes yeah, small yeah, world and yeah, so no he said that for his first time he wanted to go with someone who who was knowledgeable and he, he said he had followed you and and the timber to table stuff. Yeah. And so when he decided he wanted to jump into it and like you said, I don't think he had really, yeah, I think he was pretty, he was pretty green. Pretty limited. Yeah. 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 They did. Yeah. They had an awesome hunt. Um, That's yeah. what he said. Cause then he had a, he had a gal with him who was his sister. Or? No, just a, rant, Oh, another, yeah. Just another new hunter um, mm-hmm. that I had, paired basically carry and she was awesome too yeah and they killed that was second rifle a couple years ago mm-hmm. and yeah we were going down this trail spotted an elk across the drainage it was a bull 
and I'd, I'd set carry up on another point where we had some fresh bull tracks going up to a bedding area. I was like, sit here till dark, and I feel pretty confident this bull is going to come back down through here to drink, you know. And so Ben and I kept going down the trail, spotted this elk, turned out to be a bull. He shot it, made a great shot, killed it, did really well. Um, and we just kind of sat there for a minute, taking it in, and then I could see there was a couple more elk lower in the drainage, and one of them was another legal bull that was working its way up right to where this bull was that Ben had just shot. And I was like, I'm going to see if I can sneak out of here and grab Carrie and try and shoot. And, yeah, like probably 20, 30 minutes later, man, yeah, Carrie shot her first bull. Like, boom, boom, like 30, minutes, and they were probably like 50, 60 yards apart from each other. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. It made for a long – it was a long – Yeah, I um, bet. It was on a steep slope in a lot of thick – brush and and conifer and then um it was like a foot of snow so it was yeah i think it was like two or three in the morning when we finally got back got back to the cabin but yeah but yeah it was an it was a really memorable yeah that's um yeah and then we went back in the next morning perfect it was like one of those bluebird sunny Mm -hmm. snowy after a heavy mm, snow yeah it was just awesome and had one of my guides marshall who's like a a pack string human basically really <laughs> um, the guy's incredible um packs out and like shoes like that like just oh, super like, yeah he's just a, he's a an animal shoes? Yeah. yeah um but yeah we got it all out in one trip and yeah she killed a nice five point and ben's was um a six by six but it was broke off right at right above the brow tines mm-hmm. so there was the two brow tines and then it was snapped off so, so that's when, funny that you ran into him when he had told me that and i don't know if you recall but do you remember i think it was the last the last full day that you and i were, were together on the plateau um that evening you and i followed that pretty nice six point oh. basically from the bottom of the drainage all the way back up to the top yeah um and that that bull was broke off too. Gosh, I don't know if I remember. That. He's the one. He's the one. You have a picture. We have a picture of him. Oh and yeah, he's yeah, quartering yeah. away and bugling yes. and he was, and had a raspy like yeah. He'd been bugling for mm-hmm. a week straight and lost his voice. Yeah, because <laughs> you called the his like little satellite bull that was probably yeah. the one bugging him all day. Yeah, and I got that photo up on the wall actually. Oh really? Yeah, I blew that up into like a five by seven or something. Oh man, yeah, That's that was awesome. like a five by six. I think that was right in front of us, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. We, I, I mean, remember that. Gosh, then even when it was pitch black, getting back to the truck, they were still all yeah. We bugling. Sp- we spooked them, and they just kind of moved up and started right, right back sounding in. off again. Yeah, That's but awesome. but it. So him and I, I was like, you got to show me the photo. Like, show me. You got to show me the bull that you shot. So we're all comparing because he told me it's broke off on the left side. Oh, that elk was broken off on the left side. And I was like, how? That would be, how would yeah. fate have it to where we were at the same place? a week apart from each other and ran into the same bull. Yeah. I don't um, think they were the same. They bull, weren't. It ended up not being the same bull, but cool to think about. It, yeah. it was, yeah, cool it, it, it was very cool. That. And I was like, I and not, a, not impossible to happen. Either. No. Mm-hmm. And I commended him. I was like, you know, honestly, it's not a lot of dudes would have the, the humility about them to be like, you know, I don't know anything and I need some help from someone who does, yeah. you know? So that's, it's awesome that you, that you just, 
jumped in and and said i need all the help i can get and i'll yeah. I'll take it and we we do get to that point we, that's a lot of the hunters we get are folks that are and i guess that's the the niche so to speak that dark timber and timber to table sort of have so we, we do get a lot of new hunters and that's one of the first things they'll say in their email or or phone call is hey i'm brand new to this it looks like you guys are are what i'm looking for as far as learning how to hunt and how to do this because because I, I don't know yeah um, and back to your question ryan as far as guide mentality so to speak working with newer hunters i think at the end of the day a, a big component of it is managing your expectations as the guide like yeah. i used to be way more competitive probably than i am now like i've i've mellowed out um like as in like this guy's got to get a bull we got to up our something. success and, rates and, and i still bust my ass like don't yeah. take that the wrong way like i'm we, we work hard um to, to get our folks onto elk and into elk but I've killed enough and guided enough now that I know something it's it's not always going to happen and I try to have that humble approach to it and sort of pass that on to the hunter like hey look this is a really difficult thing we're trying to do there's a lot not in our favor yeah, there's a lot working against <laughs> yeah. you so yeah. so just so yeah. just know that from day 1 from the first minute of us going down the trail together we may not see an elk. We may not hear an elk for the next hmm. five days. We're, yeah. we're going to try, and we're going to try really hard and hunt smart, but managing our expectations. So if you do see something or hear something, it's like, how awesome is this? Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's yeah. Um, that helps a lot, I think, just that setting kind of that tone. And that's that's the right approach. I mean, because but still be positive. You know, it's not yeah, like yeah. this is really going to suck. Okay, this, this is, is really five yeah, days. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't do uh, that. But I, I feel like sometimes I'll get into that mentality when I'm hunting. I just happens it, to everybody. It, but mm -hmm. it I feel like sometimes it helps me because I'm like, you know, this is going to be the worst thing ever, and I'm just going to struggle through it, mm -hmm. right? But I mean, that's not always the right mentality to have. You gotta gotta kind of enjoy the struggle so yeah. to speak a uh, little bit honestly when we when we pulled up to that trailhead and it was just dumping rain and had been for hours already i was like <sighs> yeah motivation's pretty low. i do not <laughs> want to walk <laughs> in here right like, now can we just be road hunters yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah and i was like i do not want to walk in here right yeah. now but we did i mean we walked all the way back there but yeah it is it's a hard thing and um you know going into it i don't yeah obviously not everyone understands that they're just coming yeah. into it fresh and maybe they have expectations maybe they don't um, maybe their expectations are dead on yeah probably not though yeah. <laughs> and they probably well, have elevated expectations from stuff they've seen on tv shows oh yeah just, that's yeah. the worst and, and i feel like <laughs> that is a very important thing right because like so many hunting shows they say it's not always going to happen right you know they talk about luck but that's not exactly what the hunting show portrays with what they're showing or yeah. or even when people talking about it on instagram people mm -hmm. are always talking about you know it was so hard but you're only seeing like the pictures of yeah like so i feel like some people can't actually grasp the fact that you're not always going to get something and that maybe that's something that can only come from you know having having done it for years and you you kind of can 
understand. Yep. Might be two, three years where you don't get any elk. Could be longer for a lot of people. I went a few yeah. years um, without killing anything. Yeah. After some years of really, really good luck. And then I went a long time without not, without anything. Yeah. And then this year, finally, was able to turn around. So, so what happened when I started bow hunting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Once yeah. I started going into the, the deep dive of backcountry backpack bow hunting, yeah, I mean, it's success hard. rate hits it's the tough. floor. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of success rate, what what is your guys' typical success rate over there? For let's call it for rifle season. For rifle, um, it varies with the rifle season. So, which yeah. rifle season would you say? Could you give an average of like all of them, or or maybe your best <clears throat> rifle season, whatever? Yeah, I'll break. We do. Um, we usually do first, second, third rifle up there. I don't guide. Mm-hmm. I don't guide fourth rifle. Um, first is the best for for yeah. sure um and i would say we have near pre- for sure 100 percent opportunity really um as far as success i would say over the years greater than 50 percent nice um, wow. on first rifle um second and third rifle i would lump together because they're very similar in the sense that we'll get into elk we'll have any <laughs> this is going to sound uh, like a horrible cop out answer we will literally have anywhere from 0 to 100% opportunity yeah in those in those two seasons and then success is the same same but we've yeah. never had 100% success in either of those two hunts and over the years but um you know like last year second rifle was awful really the weather was bad in terms of it was it was warm it was windy um, and we didn't kill anything. We saw tons of elk, but we could not find a legal bull. Um, really? and when we did, it was literally like the last minute illegal shooting light. Like they, f- you finally see something from, you know, it just popped out. You don't have time to get set up. You run out of light. It's too far away. You can't get to it in time. Um, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff last year, the year prior, I think we had like 60% success during second rifle with 100% opportunity, but it was a foot of snow. And that was when Ben and Carrie yeah. were hunting. Um, we killed like three or four bulls that season and um, had much different weather that was way more favorable to us in terms of tracking and visibility and um, elk on a snowy slope in the timber when there's no leaves on the aspen. Oh man, man, they it's, stick yeah. out. it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. He, um, you could be like, hauling in a side-by-side shaking oh there they are yeah you know 200 yards away oh yeah so that really um well uh, so that's it 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 varies i guess yeah um, sounds like it but by and large we we do we do pretty well most of the time yeah Um, i mean it sounds like you're you're better than the average success rates on uh that you would see on some website or something like that which is what you're asking for with god right i think we do better than the state average which um if you're paying for a hunt that's probably what you want to hear yeah yeah definitely (laughs) yeah so um did you have something well so my comment it's not really anything to add but like the the seasonality of colorado you know rifle seasons not really the archery season because it's like a month long but the rifle seasons you know going a week Anywhere from two weeks to four days, 
typically a week on on most of them. Man, it's just hard to really so get it done every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, you you just have to you just have to you know just chalk it all up to weather and hopefully it plays in your favor. Yeah, well, and, and hunter hunter pressure, mm. lack of hunter pressure. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you only get four days to hunt. I mean, it, you're putting all those chips in that basket. Yeah. Because you didn't get a bull tag during archery season. Yeah. And you know you. It's all, it's all there. Mm-hmm. So it, that's yeah. that's hard to do, anyways, and and so to have the kind of work put in to achieve su- high success rates like that, it's pretty amazing. Because like Montana, you can hunt for what is it like a month and a week on yeah, rifle, more than that. rifle, and <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you get archery season too if you want. Yeah. Well, I'm saying with a rifle. Yeah, yeah. And Colorado, then archery season. Yeah, Colorado seasons are definitely um, unusual. Yeah, the rifle structure, yeah. which. I mean, it is what it is. You got to work with what you got, but I, I can't say um. There's pros and cons to it, I guess. No, totally, there is. Yeah. So. Big con, probably hunter pressure, con congregated into five days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you um, pull up and you, there needs to be like parking space shuttle. lines. There's a shuttle <laughs> to the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Parking lot attendants. Yeah. Yeah. Horse trailers over here. Right. Um. So I I really had kind of one more question don't want to take up too much of your time and i know we we kind of got to get back and do some work at some point here but yeah this, um, is, this has been nice nah. <laughs> one, one thing i'm i've been curious about because i you know there's a minute where i was in high school and i thought about going to guide school and stuff like that so i was always kind of thinking about you know that kind of stuff right um but one one question that i have for you specific to your operation is so so you're you're kind of you hunt two units right and i think it's safe to assume i guess you already said them on which we can bleep out by the way if you want to bleep out those units that you said you don't care yeah Yeah, i mean i guess it's kind of promotion for your business anyway so yeah and 62 i mean it's it's pretty heavily hunted already yeah which isn't a big big deal and 61 on the other hand takes 20 years to draw i had two i had two guys booked with us this year with i think 26 and 28 points and they didn't draw what were they out of staters yeah oh really okay Mm. anyways keep going yeah i guess my my question is do you approach guiding those two units differently just because there's such a vast difference between the two of them one's heavily pressured you're probably shooting any legal bull you can mm-hmm. the other one you're probably looking for something you know that could be a bull of a lifetime right for sure what what are the differences in in guiding for those two areas yeah um you're asking good questions by the way <laughs> hey man um so i get paid the big bucks <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh yeah i think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there right at the start like in 62 what i always tell folks is um if you want to hold out for something like you're you want a five point or bigger you you're only going to shoot a six point totally fine and and we'll do whatever we can um to make that happen uh most oftentimes um in 62 in that over-the-counter unit they say that for about a day and then it's like yeah i'll probably shoot, I'll shoot whatever is legal. Yeah. <laughs> um so there is there is that so if you see a legal bull we're going to try to kill it most oftentimes and the other thing i'm super aggressive i I don't dink around if if i know there's a bull bugling or i know i see elk 
just visually um, versus hear them, I'm, I'm going after them yeah. because chances are someone else is going to stumble into them or maybe they bugle and another hunter here. So I, I, I'm very, very aggressive um, the way I hunt and the way I guide in, in 62. Conversely, in that uh, draw unit in 61 and also on our late season cow hunts, way more patient um, and try not to blow stuff out. Don't have to be as aggressive. Um, smaller bulls, like you said, I ignore them. Mm -hmm. um, we're not shooting that four point. We're here to, you know, focus on a more quality animal you've put in for however many years. Let's try and find a really good, you know, a really good bull for you. Um, so yeah, I'd say more patient, less aggressive. Um, and, and more selective on yeah. that 61 side and on the cow hunts, the way those work is we're on a specific piece of property. Um, they're, they're usually damage control hunts mm. on, on some small ranches there in the North Fork Valley. And I don't have the luxury of chasing elk over tens of thousands of acres like yeah. you do on public land. You got to be really surgical. So when they're on that ranch, it's like, okay. If we have a shot opportunity and we can get one of these cows, we'll do it. But if they're spooked or they're just starting to go to their bedding area or they're right on the fence line, it's like, hey, let's leave them alone. Let's back out of here and we'll come back tonight hmm. and, and see if they come in. Because um, you don't want to blow them out of the, the acreage that you're legally allowed to hunt. Um, so you got to be a little more patient there and a little more selective and chances are, like I say, it's a big herd of cows usually. So when they leave, if you didn't booger them and mess with them, they come, they're going to come, come right back. Yeah. Um, hopefully. And so, uh, I've had the opposite happen where it's like, there they go that morning. We let them go cause it wasn't right. And it's like, Oh yeah, they'll come back. And then that didn't <laughs> somebody happen. Else, somebody else chased them off. <laughs> or they just went some. They yeah. went to the neighbors, and it's like, yeah, there they are, and you can't really do anything about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. But no, yeah, that, that's kind of how I go in the, about it. In the and it's fun both ways. You know? Yeah. Even yeah. in those over-the-counter units, going after elk aggressively is kind of fun. Like, yeah hey, let's no holds barred. And, and maybe it means you're you're not going to bugle or cow call as much. You're just going to go right to them and try to get in on them as quick as possible versus cat and mouse type of thing where you're trying to bugle them in or, or whatever. It's all situational, but and that was gonna be, it's kind of on the fly, which is, which yeah. is cool. That yeah. was going to be my question was like, do you find yourself bugling more often in 61 side, the unpressured side? No. Mm -mm. I would say way less. Really? Honestly. Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, I was just talking to a hunter about this yesterday. Wow. It's, yeah, it's contradictory. And, and the reason is in, in 61, at least from my experience, guiding in there, um, when you're bugling or you're cow calling, it, 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 it can work. Um, but oftentimes it's like you're the fourth or fifth or sixth bull bugling. Mm. or you're the 20th cow that's mute you know it's yeah. like there's a lot of animals in there and they're not yeah. as pressured they're acting like elk are supposed to act uh, which is a really cool thing to get to watch um but calling isn't isn't always as effective sometimes it certainly can be and it's like what you see on tv or whatever but a lot of times it's not because it's like 
well, there's three bulls bugling in this basin, and I'm standing above them bugling, and they're just bugling back. Yeah, that's interesting. What are they going to, which one are they going to go to? You know, yeah. so you just got to not, so not call and go to them. They're doing the work for you. Yeah, more you know? spot and stock. Yeah. To, well, yeah, get to them. And I think that, like, it would work best if, like, you're sneaking in, you're like, I don't know where he's at right at this current moment. I might need him to sound off and maybe, maybe just bugling gets yeah. him to sound off or, or another cow. It's not necessarily to pull him towards you, but maybe to Locate. kind of relocate. Just, yeah. 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 And oftentimes they're again, at least from, from what I know of it, um, they'll help you. They'll do it on their own. Yeah, I was gonna say that one. I mean, every, it was like every three minutes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, clock, was no, clockwork. Yeah, yeah. Was, I mean, really, like we could have. I mean, yeah, we could have uh, tracked him in the complete pitch dark. Yeah, yeah. It was, which is awesome. Like yeah. I say, it's really cool seeing elk doing what they do. Yeah, without being fearful of something, you know, they're just acting. They're betting in the wide open in the middle of the day, mm -hmm. you know, like Yellowstone park elk or something. Yeah. It's re it's a pretty neat thing, um, to get to, to be in that. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's good that that place exists. Like, for sure. A lot of people I'm sure are maybe jaded about how many points it takes. Yep. Yeah. I'm one you of know. them. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, but it's like, you know, it's good that that, those places exist so you can, you know, yeah. At least someone can experience it. Yeah, and you can just go hike around during hunting season where where hunters orange. But yeah. if you please really want to see, yeah, <laughs> yeah please, yeah. please yeah. don't. But there's also times, yeah, to your point. Well, but you guys did, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was early. It was actually before. It was between archery and we were in the oh, okay. we were in that dead okay. week early. Yeah, right. all right. But to your point, it's um, I was just gonna say that like there's no reason anyone can't go out there and and experience that. But yeah, to Lee's point, like maybe check the hunting season yeah. dates so you're not endangering yourself or, or screwing up someone's experience that they've waited a really long time for. Yeah, but, and that's, that's the thing with that unit. But even then, like, the, the amount of people I saw taking side-by-sides and ripping around up there on all those little back roads. Mm -hmm. um, it's a popular road. Didn't, seem, road. didn't yeah. seem to be an issue. No, and that's one thing on the plateau that has been an eye-opener for me. Um, the elk are not, and I think this is a huge exception to almost every other yeah. thing you read or hear. They don't care about ATVs. Hmm. Like it does not seem to bother them. Well, really? they probably um, hear them the moment they hit the ground. They, yeah. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> they're hearing dirt bikes and ATVs and side by sides exactly from the minute they are born. There's so many of those loops and trails through that plateau yeah. um, that they're it's, and most of the time that's all people are doing. They're just, zip, yeah. they're, they're just zipping through. Yeah, you know? I don't think and any of those folks that we saw were hunters getting ready because we were still a few days out from mm -hmm. the next season mm -hmm. when I left. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so Because you were going to go back into town still at, when I left and do something. Oh, okay. And so it was, a memory than I it was a few days then. So, yeah. so there's a lot of people out there just recreating. For sure. So, the, yeah, they must be pretty used to it. Yeah, and yeah. I've watched elk actually, like, seen an ATV multiple times where you're watching <laughs> somebody driving, whether they're hunting or just cruising, you know, they're recreating. But it's like I'm, I'm watching a bull 200 yards off the ATV trail, and that ATV putzes by him, 
and it's just nah, they might look doesn't look. doesn't move. Well, hey, <laughs> a moving ATV means that 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 person is not chasing after you as an elk. Yeah, you know exactly. So. Yeah, isn't that <clears throat> like uh, that that? But I do think it's the ex- you know. I think most yeah, oftentimes in other places, yeah, they're they're getting yeah, scared off. They yeah. associate that noise with with not good, and they leave. Yeah, well, Sitka came out with a, a thing when they released some thing for their whitetail line, and uh, you know this guy who was guiding whitetail hunts was like adamant that like you don't drive yourself out, you get driven out, you. You step out of the ATV, you grab your stuff, you stand there, let the ATV leave mm. for like a while. You just stand there. The ghost drop kind of. Yeah. And then and then you slowly start making your way to your stand in the, you know, in, in uh, you know, right, right there in the morning. Yeah. Just so they like, here it come and here it go. Mm-hmm. You know. They're smarter. Than, uh, animals are much smarter than then we give them credit for, I think, in most yeah. circumstances. <laughs> that was understatement of the yeah. uh, of the day for sure. Um, um, what do you think about wolves being reintroduced in Colorado? Um, that's funny you ask, because that's where I, I just came from a meeting about that very really? topic before here. Yeah. Uh, was it good? Um, I'm on the stakeholder advisory group for CPW hmm. for the state. Yeah. Um, as an outfitter representative um i voted no on the reintroduction and i'm very sound and secure in 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 that vote and telling people why i voted no um i've got a wolf background i was a wolf biologist in idaho um, prior to moving to colorado um so yeah i don't think a federal reintroduction is is needed or necessary but that's what the people of Colorado voted for. So here, here we are. Um, what it's, it's, it's on, yeah, and I'll, I'll shut up here in a second. No, I, I could, no, this no, could be a whole other podcast. Yeah. So, and we I'm, might um, have to do it and we might have to do it because but, uh, I think it's important. But, um, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate. This pack that's up by North park, Yeah, their behavior. It's, I mean, they're checking every single box as far as what you hope wolves don't do. You know, they're killing livestock. They've killed guard dogs. They've killed, they've surplus killed cow elk and not necessarily eaten all of them. And they're, they're constantly harassing Don Gittleson on his ranch with his, his livestock operation. So they're doing all the things that you hope the first pack in Colorado would not do. Uh, but here we are. Um, and that pack was not planted. No, they came in on their yeah, own. Yeah, they in came the, in on their own. In the group that was up in the northwest part of the state, up in Moffat County, they came in on their own. Mm-hmm. They got shot up um, once they kind of crossed back into Wyoming. They got shot. I think there's only one of those animals left. But, I mean, that's whatever, eight, I don't know, maybe not that many, but six to eight animals that have come in on their own. The pack that is in North Park now, they had six pups last year. All six survived. Wow. Which is not all that common for that high yeah. highest survivorship of the pups i'm sure the female's denning right now and probably going to have another litter um i'm speculating there but this is the time of year when that's happening um so yeah and, and to that end that's where to me i i didn't think the re- reintroduction is just so divisive from a social standpoint and that's really what 
wolf reintroduction in Colorado, as well as in the northern Rockies. It's it's not so much a biological mm -hmm. issue; it's a social yeah. issue in yeah, getting sure. people to accept it. And it's my, my big it's contentious. Uh, my big like um, worry is that it will undo all of the good work that we've done in the last decade for the moose reintroduction of the entire state, mm -hmm. especially in the places like Route, Moffat, uh, yeah, the Grand Mesa, Grand Mesa. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and, south, yeah, and even, yeah, yeah and even up Lons, around yeah. North Park, the, those types of areas, Estes, mm -hmm. up and around Estes, like the, the moose was gone. Basically, it was very few and far between until we started. Uh, you know, yeah, they've doing done well. Yeah, I think Colorado's got one of the only growing moose populations. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. I think, so as uh, a as a wolf biologist, you obviously that was it, previous life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a previous life. Yeah. Um, funny that now you're a you're a hunting guide, which I know, yeah. they seem to kind of be on the opposite ends of the spectrum, a, almost a little bit. But you obviously you must have some relationship, sort of you know close. You, I would assume that you don't hate wolves, right? No, not at all. Yeah, they're yeah. Go ahead, answer they're yourself. awesome animals. I'm, sh you know, that's. I feel like a lot of biologists are very closely connected to the animals that they study, right? Um, coming from that perspective, are wolves really? Because if you if you talk to some people, right, wolves are going to be the end of elk hunting in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Wolves are going to you know kill all the cattle it's it's going to put an end to all this stuff it's it's essentially going to change everything that we do right that's that's obviously the far end of the spectrum yeah but i mean if you look at montana they still have i think it's the second largest elk population in the lower 48 mm -hmm. um you know idaho they have a very strong elk population for the carrying capacity of that land mm -hmm. um like what is the what is the impact like when a when a pack of wolves comes onto a landscape? What is the impact in terms of guides, outfitters, and and elk? Is it really as bad as people say, or or is there some like 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 um, I guess why are you f anti reintroduction aside from kind of the livestock aspect of it? Yeah, in, in um, the in the guide and outfitter. Yeah, Mindset. I, the reason I voted no on the, at Proposition 114 um, was just from the standpoint of the wolves are coming in on their own mm -hmm. right now. Um, no, it's not an insta population where it's like you drop 20 of them and you're off to the races with, with establishing a, a wolf population. But they're going to trickle in on their own. <clears throat> yeah, there might be some complications with... Uh, livestock operators which unfortunately were happening it's happening right off the bat here yeah. um but f from a social acceptance standpoint i think it would have been more palatable to the general public instead of you vote yes or you vote no yeah. and you're in one camp or the other now you can argue that a lot of ways um and and that's again that's a, that's a longer conversation um but that was sort of my rationale is a key component to a successful wolf reintroduction is social acceptance. Yeah. And if you've got a half your population, like we do in Colorado that voted, I mean, it was essentially split 50, down 50, middle, 50 yeah. with just a few percentage, you know, decimal points, um, in favor of a yes vote. 
So you've got effectively half the population that does not want them here. They're not going to be real open about their presence, which can lead to wolves getting killed, yeah. you know, the shoot shovel shut up, that whole mentality. And I think some of that can be less uh, if the, the government's not involved um, from a reintroduction standpoint. That's a very base answer to that because, um, again, it, there, it, there's a lot more subtlety and nuance there yeah. um, on, on both sides. Um, to answer your question, from the guide outfitter standpoint, what I saw in Idaho, which is where I was working, um, a lot of outfitters went out of business. Really? Period. End of story. Now, wow. they blamed it on wolves, um, and there was a lot of upset outfitters like, hey, you know, wolves are killing all these elk, da-da-da. Um, but, and I think there's some truth to that. Elk are the main source of prey for wolves. And I think in those early years of reintroduction, um, there was a lot of carnage. Yeah. The elk are figuring out. They're just not used to. Yeah, they got a top-tier predator back on the landscape that they haven't had to deal with for decades. And all of a sudden, here they are in moss, you know. And um, and I think there's a learning curve there. And then, as you said, here we are, 20, 25, what are we, 20, do my math, 27 years into reintroduction in the northern Rockies. Idaho, Montana, Wyoming all have record numbers of elk record harvests, a lot of opportunity for residents and non-residents. Now there's areas in all three of those states where ungulate numbers aren't where the state wants them. Like central Idaho is still really struggling. Um, is that where they have, do they have a lot of wolves? In yeah, there's a lot of wolves yeah. there, but there's also habitat issues. And yeah. even in some places, like where I used to live in Idaho, in the north, one of the places I lived, the north central part of the state, the Lolo zone, um, which is units 10 and 12, that was kind of like ground zero for the anti-wolf crowd, you know, saying, look at what they've done to all these elk. And elk numbers are still not what they used to be. But when you look at the trends, the reason those populations in that area were so high was from those big fires uh, back in the 30s, mm. that great burn, all that stuff, the big burn. And there was no predators. So that it's like elk and deer had this perfect scenario for a huge population boom so as that landscape changed and forests matured they lost browse when you look like in the early 90s pre-wolf introduction that clearwater elk herd was already starting to drop really and now you put wolves on top of that they have a black bear issue there there's a lot of black bears so you've just got multiple layers. Yeah, it kind of exacerbated the issue. Yeah, yeah, kind of suppressing the ability of that herd to, to come back. Now, there's still elk there. Not as many people hunt. They've had to you know restrict license quotas for sure. Um, so my point is there are areas, it's not all rainbow farts and pony rides where it's predator-prey coexistence and everything's happy. Yeah. Um, there are places where numbers are down, but by and large... Like you said, there's still a lot of hunting opportunity. Um, there's still a lot of elk on the landscape um, with wolves present. And in Montana, there's places where they're dealing with, they got grizzly bears and wolves and mountain lions and black bears. Mm -hmm. um, they got it all. But yeah. still healthy populations of, of elk and deer. So, um, But like I say, what I saw in Idaho is a lot of guys uh, did go out of business. Um, I don't know if you can totally blame that on wolves. Just because there's other factors, there's habitat yeah. issues, fire suppression, 
reduced logging, which opens up browse for elk. So, I mean, there's a lot of different yeah, and that, that might be like... It's never one. It's never yeah. just one thing. And I Although think that fish. would be like something that... I don't, I don't know if hopefully... Because what CPW is charged to do this by 2024? December of 2023 is when wolves got to be on the ground. Okay. Yeah, so... Really? In, they in, have to be on the ground That's in what the law states. That's what the law wow. states. Yeah. And if I not, thought it was just like they had to make a plan by 2023. No, mm-hmm. yeah. hmm. I think, I no. think they, that is, but I think the, the intent is... Have wolves on the ground. Yeah, wolves And so maybe you can speak to this a little bit just coming from a meeting. Like, are they taking that into consideration when they're looking at where exactly what time of year to do like because yeah. because we've got cwd we've got all sorts of uh all sorts of um you know migration corridor um issues popping up with uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of n- not urban sprawl but yeah, sub- in- suburban sprawl increased population it, increased population especially in these mountain towns right after mm-hmm. covid that are just yep. exploding i heard them called zoom towns instead of boom towns are called yeah, zoom towns I heard that too <laughs> yeah. um yeah. bozeman's one of them you know just yeah just all the remote example. workers yeah. yeah and so like hopefully cpw and 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 the stakeholders are bringing this to their attention like you know we've got all these other problems how are we not going to make it worse by throwing their their worst nightmare at them? <laughs> yeah. yeah you know in no, the it's... in their worst time of year yeah you know like if they hit the ground december of 2023 you're right it would be an absolute and that's bloodbath like that's it was probably and, and that's probably what will happen just because logistically that's the best time to be able to to capture and transport, and transport. wolves mm-hmm. um it's also uh yeah, logistically easier and more cost-effective mm. for the state okay. uh, to, to be able to fulfill that. Now, having said that, I don't know exactly when, you know, if it's going to be November or January or March or, or when exactly, but I, I think the winter time is probably, I suspect, when we would see... Um, that reintroduction actually taking place. Yeah, and they haven't quite said we're getting close, but they haven't totally identified the number that they're going to reintroduce over how many years, you know, is it going to be six per year for five years or 10 per year for three years? I mean, all that is still a little bit in the making. Um, it has to be on private land. I do know that. Uh, oh, they're, really? Or they're going to do it on private land so they don't have to go through a, hmm. um, I believe it's an EIS process for public land. So that that's one thing that's a little bit different. Um, but it's not a that's not a big deal because I mean it's not like if they kick out six wolves here on Ryan's ranch, they're not gonna stay on Ryan's ranch. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're gonna go all over the place. Yeah. yeah. More than likely. They're gonna cover a lot of country, so they're not gonna just stay there. Um but yeah, uh I think the state is being very thorough um in trying to suss out all these variables and um, and make sure everyone's being heard. You know, all these meetings that we have, they're once a month. Um, they're open to the public. Our meetings are, the stakeholder meetings are, so the public can comment. Um, there's usually a pretty good turnout of, of pro-wolf folks. Um, the last couple meetings, there's been a better turnout 
of, of hunters and outfitters. We had one up in Meeker recently that had a great turnout of hunters and outfitters, and they had really good things to say. They were respectful and professional, but had really valid points. And I think the state is, is hearing all those things um, and, and trying to do it the right way. They're in collaboration with the Northern Rockies to try to learn from, from their mistakes yeah or things that worked well or, or didn't work well um and and i hope this is one of the things as a stakeholder that myself and a few others on the stakeholder group are trying to promote is being proactive with you know if we got to make changes in elk quota like license quota for elk in a certain area where wolves like the flat tops let's say mm-hmm. wolves are going to be there there's yep. just too many animals there it's too good a habitat Let's be proactive. Do we need to try and grow that elk herd to act as a buffer? Yeah, you know, to to absorb some of the early blows that they're going to take from from predation, or, or not. You know, I don't get to make those decisions, but right. those are things right. that we're trying to get. You know, the stakeholder group and CPW to hear us out on. And CPW, yeah. they don't do a good job of communicating it. I don't feel like, which is another thing we're trying to work on with them, but they are trying to grow herds you know they're trying to grow deer herds back they're trying to get elk herds to come back like down in the san juans and that area they're they're trying i just i don't think they're as effective as they could be in communicating like hey the reason you're not drawing a cow license every year anymore is because numbers are down and we're trying to get numbers back up so yeah and i think you know like it's complicated yeah that whole thing with not drawing an elk tag, like there's plenty of other tags to be had. It might not just be in your backyard anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. unfortunately. And mm-hmm. like, that's something I think we all have to come to terms with, uh, as we try to figure this whole thing out. Yeah. And that's another thing in these upcoming meetings this summer, the outreach and education aspect of this wolf reintroduction is going to be huge really important just for the public whether you're a soccer mom in boulder or a fifth generation rancher or outfitter in meeker or wherever uh the importance of trying to educate folks on wolves their impact on the landscape that's critical i think just in terms of getting people to trust cpw and and trust this it the sky is not going to fall, you know. I know sure, there's a lot, yeah. there's a ton of fear, and that fear has merit and it's valid. There's a lot of little red riding hood stuff out there as far as myths and, you know, well, they kill 20 elk at a time. And it's like, no, they don't. That's not, that's not true. <laughs> um, but they are going to kill elk and they're probably, oh, yeah. they're going to kill a lot of them early on. But as we said, you look up north over time things will they'll balance yeah, it'll out probably you know. end up somewhere in the middle between they're gonna decimate every living creature on the landscape and they're gonna be little yeah house, house dogs or something yeah they're, they're sacred animals and yeah. that's the thing with wolves there's very little gray area like they're yeah. either the spawn of satan and everyone should be gut shot or they walk on water and uh, they are a deified weird. being, you know, and, yeah. and, and that's no joke. I mean, yeah. people are really passionate on both sides um, and there's very little, uh, there's not a lot of um, objectivity in, in the wolf yeah. discussion. Um, yeah. It's rare to find, I think, but it's important to try to be 
objective and, and look at the facts and look at the numbers and not buy into one side or the yeah. other. And I'm I'm so conflicted on that, right? Because I love wolves. Like, you know, They're cool going animals. Up, up to Yellowstone, it was like, man, if you saw a wolf, that was like awesome, mm-hmm. right? And I would love to, to see a few out there, but... You know, just not obviously, <laughs> just not where I'm hunting. <laughs> just well, keep them in Rocky Mountain National Park or something. But yeah. it, and uh, you know, I, I think there's, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with, right? Like you can, you can really love, like I love elk. Like mm-hmm. I, I love watching them. You know, anytime, like we used to go up to Rocky Mountain National Park all the time as a kid and just watch the elk every September if we weren't. Yeah up hunting because they're they're very cool animals but you know i i feel it's also a human's responsibility to understand that we're still very much part of the ecosystem and we have integrated ourselves so much into the world right where we really do have to be the stewards like there's there's no going back to nature that's just not a possibility that's never going to happen unless we get rid of every single agricultural field burn down every building that's not going to happen my my cyanide pill uh idea yeah true everyone everyone gets cyanide pill and yeah then we let nature have it all back but it would never be the same because what's (laughs) going to happen to the empire state building there's going to be like mice and, and things that take that over. Yeah. So it can never go back to yeah. what it was. That's a lot. It'll basically idea. just be a big bird's nest. Yeah. Probably. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Just, just see a bunch of level. eagles. <laughs> yeah. Breaking out of windows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it's like, I think the, the big thing with wolf is just trying to see the other side of, you know, understanding that. Yeah, if, if they were to drop a pack of wolves on the on the Uncapagre Plateau, it would mm. probably be pretty bad for you guys for a few years. I mean, yeah. you know, eventually it, it might bounce back, but there would be some tough years, and that's your whole livelihood. Yeah, right? and could right. your business sustain three years of no? And yeah. and the thing <laughs> is, is like it's not Couldn't. even like it's not even like your hunters wouldn't kill anything. But they have the perception of now that area is ruined. Well, that's that, part of it, yeah. That know? was something that I witnessed in Idaho is that I thought was unfortunate. Um, outfitters did themselves no favors. They were so mad and lashing out that in the process, you know, if I'm an elk hunter, all I'm hearing are outfitters complaining there's going to be no elk left and yeah, then you're like, are killing all these elk and it's like well i'm not going hunting with that yeah, guy yeah you know? yeah like, so i don't want to go not, there then because yeah. i want to i want to shoot an elk for versus, the first time you're yeah. telling me there's no elk because all the wolves kill yeah. Them, right? yeah versus you know the the concept i try to think of is okay i'm an outfitter i've got wolves i now offer wolf tours like yeah <laughs> family of four go. from denver come on out and you may not see a wolf you may not hear a wolf just like elk hunting but we're going to try to howl. Maybe we'll find some tracks. We'll spend a day in the woods. You know, try to basically diversify your, your business um, to where it's working for you. Or, or at least you're trying to make it work for you. Versus Man, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good point right there. Um, that really is. Because yeah. especially if they don't reintroduce wolves into Rocky Mountain National Park. Oh, they're going to be all over the western slope. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. I mean, eventually. Yeah. I mean, that's where they have to be re 
it's not on on the eastern side of the it state. It has to be west of the Continental Divide, and there's yeah. probably going to be like a buffer around the Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico state lines. So, really? So yeah. they don't. So they don't like you. Don't spend a bunch of money reintroducing Colorado wolves, and two days into it, they're all in Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico, and they're not coming back into Colorado. Yeah, I'm cool with that, man. Keep well, yeah, elk. yeah. They I just have to. CPW minutes. is like, well, we tried. Yeah, we, we tried. tried. We're out of money. Yeah, so, but no, there will be you know kind of within you know yeah. the, the central kind of. chunk of the western slope of Colorado. But again, once they're reintroduced. There's nothing to keep them from going into Boulder well, yeah. or out to Pueblo yeah, or where's, up to Craig or wherever. Where's that Moffat mm-hmm. crew coming from? They came from, those wolves came from Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah, and they, yeah. I mean, they crossed state lines. Yep. Yeah, well, and that's what everyone said. Like, oh, they'll never survive going through Wyoming. They're going to get shot. and done. Oh, they're, they're, they're tough to see. And that's what coming, I was saying. Like, through. Like, in Yellowstone, it's different, right, because they're there's roads everywhere and people all have the spotting scopes but if you could uh if you could really get some people on seeing some wolves like people from boulder would for sure pay for that yeah and it's super cool when you do see them or or even even just hearing them you don't have to see them you hear a pack of wolves howl there's nothing like that i mean it's Mm -hmm. a pretty amazing experience to get to hear something like that so except for hearing an elk bugle (laughs) <laughs> which is right up there too yeah yeah equally yeah. cool or a mountain lion the only you know, thing yowl or whatever you know the the worst thing would be hearing elk bugle and then hearing a whole pack of wolves howl yeah <laughs> yeah that would that would turn that that those two positives into a <laughs> negative and, and, yeah that's like the, the wolves time. are in between you and the bugle yeah and the yeah. yeah yeah that would yeah. be a downer um yeah. but yeah it'll be uh it's going to be interesting but like i say i i guess the the mentality i try to keep is it's not all going to go to shit. Um, there's going to be frustrating, hard times, I think, from a hunting standpoint. Um, and a lot of people talk about oh, all the economic benefits that wolves are going to bring to the state of Colorado. And and there probably will be. I don't doubt that. But try telling that to Don Gittleson, the rancher, who's now had four calves whacked. Or the outfitter who's yeah. got a den site in the middle of his permitted area and the elk are not in his area as they used to be. Um, and he can't take as many hunters because the elk simply aren't there. They haven't all been killed, but they're not going to hang out in that same Creek drainage (laughs) where a pack of wolves is. Um, so that's where I I think to your point, trying to be a little more open-minded, understand both points of view. Um, and hopefully, like I say, the state can, put together a good management plan which i think we will um the the biggest thing to me from day one for a wolf reintroduction to be successful in colorado is no litigation that's what hamstrung the northern rockies horribly is environmental groups filing lawsuits and putting off the ability for delisting to take place and states Mm. to be able to take over management yeah so there's this delay year after year after year due to litigation. In the meantime, the wolves are doing what they're breeding, they're growing, they're expanding. Well, and, that, but and now all of a sudden, instead of having a few hundred that you could manage and, and they're established and they're not going to be endangered anymore, now you got 1,500. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily a problem. Again, prey numbers are doing okay, you know. So maybe 1,500 is actually what idaho can have um and still be fine with elk and deer and all that stuff 
Um, but it just, I, I hope Colorado doesn't fall victim to the litigation game because I'm worried about that for sure. And it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, well, there's going to be groups on both the, sides that file suits, I'm sure. Yeah. But it would be wonderful if we put together a management plan that all those groups agreed upon to the point that they don't feel like they need to litigate and, and just let the state do its job, let wolves get established, reintroduce themselves, bam, they're going to think they've died and gone to heaven when they come to Colorado. And I'm sure their population is going to grow quick. Um, and it would be great if that happened and they reach their reintroduction goals from a management standpoint and we can just kind of go forward. Yeah, and there's, like, if we Without could set Without huge that, delays. Exactly. If we could set it now, get it in paper, you know, once once we get 400 wolves or whatever, 500 wolves or whatever the number is, mm-hmm. there's going to be a legal hunting season for them and, and folks can shoot yeah, them. Yeah, that's going to be a challenging one in Colorado. I, it would be, I've, it, it's going to be... A long time before. I mean, it's, that. it's challenging in Wisconsin, yeah. which is... Well, we saw it with the grizzly bears, right? Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, they're they, still they, getting... They were going to delist them. People were buying... People were able to buy tags, and the whole shooting with the camera movement came out, which it doesn't matter which, which way you think about it. The state, you know, they were delisted because they reached a management level that was sufficient to take them off the endangered species list or whatever mm-hmm. and uh they yeah, were delisted with, with science backing with yeah exactly they reached that that number because of you know things like carrying capacity and all that stuff and then we saw again like the the social aspect come out oh shoot them with a the camera and they're buying all the hunting tags and basically forcing wyoming to to backtrack and no more hunting season on grizzly bears and how they've been delisted and i'm sure that's uh that's going to have impacts on carrying capacity for both grizzly bears black bears ungulates i'm no biologist but i can only imagine that when a biologist says this is the number this is what we should stick to that's that's probably what we should do you know like i would would just assume yeah (laughs) oh it'd, it'd be wonderful if we could achieve something like that but the fact that we voted on a wolf reintroduction exactly. in the first place is not it's not, a, it's not a good not a good start, start. No. yeah exactly ballot box and biology is a bad thing yeah and it never happens the opposite way it's never like let's vote for a spring bear season in colorado yeah <laughs> you know it's it's never that it's always right. i'm gonna start i'm gonna start the petition right now yeah dude i i want to get a group on board to to bring back spring bear in colorado I, I think that would be amazing because yeah. you can shoot I, two or three of them in the fall if you want. I mean, you can at least shoot two. I don't. Maybe you can't get three, but you can get two because they're B licenses. Get two of them. Shoot two bears in the fall. Just move one of them to the spring. You know, there's there's so many black bear issues, and especially in the front range. I mean, All Angie out here too. And yeah, Angie was just showing us a, a video from her house of a of a bear that was. Um, you know, they live down in Uray. Bear walking down the street. Uh, their dog starts barking at it. The bear literally runs right to a house, right to this house <laughs> that it's been, you know, getting in the For trash. security. Yeah, and it's a small bear right now. It's not much bigger than a dog. But give it another year. Yeah. 
that's going to be uh, that's going to be repeat situation of what happened two years ago in Uray where the lady got killed because she was feeding the bear trash. Yeah, that's a very common situation, and the the fact is, the uh, the best way to mitigate that is to unleash the the only predator that black bears have in Colorado, which is humans, right? Mm-hmm. Grizzly so, bears. Wait. Oh. <laughs> hey, in the San Juans, man, there's rumors. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. The yeah. only time I've ever been charged by a bear is a black bear. I've Yeah, grizzlies, all sorts of stuff. Nope, black bear. I'm glad I haven't seen enough grizzlies to put myself in that that uh, percentage group to to be charged. <laughs> yeah, I haven't either. Yeah. So, I'd, yeah, I hope I never have to. Although, yeah, yeah grizzlies are they're cool as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I Watching grizzly bears is like, it's up there. They're impressive. They're mm. Powerful. Yeah. I, the number one animal I like seeing and watching is probably a bighorn sheep of any variety. Doll stones, hmm. Rocky Mountain desert. Sheep are just cool. They're pretty sweet animals. Then it's like elk, grizzly bear, wolf. Uh, moose has got to be up there too. I don't know. Yeah, moose are cool. Bear. Yeah, bears are cool. Just they're like, uh, like black bears always kind of remind me of. They're like. Almost like cartoon characters, like they're so anim- I feel, yeah, like they're so animated. Mm-hmm. That's you know, funny that you say that. Dramatic in their gestures, and right? they walk kind of goof, like they yeah. kind of like flop a little bit when yeah, they walk. Yeah, they know? ripple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do. They they ripple. do ripple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I got I got some footage of a. It, it's like the gr- first grizzly bear I've seen that's probably has has seen less human life than like a grizzly bear in Bozeman. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. that, that sees humans coming up highlight every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had our camp set, um, you know, just, just up the river from where I saw this bear. She had two cubs with her, and she stuck her nose up in the air, started beelining it to camp. I've got footage of it, and I might, show you, I might be able to pull it up for you guys. But she starts beelining it to camp, and I'm like, well there goes camp you know <laughs> I, I was like i yep. was like okay yeah she's gonna go tear up camp i'm gonna watch her do it and she puts on the brakes sticks her nose back in the air and flips back around gathers her cubs and over the ridge and away from camp and yeah. away from camp and is gone i was up in alaska mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and i was like that's like that's probably the way they should act they should probably be like whoa that yeah. is not a smell that is normal to hear that's not right yeah. i gotta go yeah well, well they, they get hunted more up there that's i yeah. think that's one of the big things yeah they know it's something to be afraid of which yeah, yeah is is a good thing for everybody involved I think. Yeah. yeah oh for sure uh, yeah yeah well, Adam, I know we said we were going to get off the podcast about an hour ago, but yeah, no, we, it, was, it was good. I I really appreciate you coming out here, man. That was thank you. I thoroughly enjoy these sit down podcasts. We don't get to do a ton of them, and yep. yeah, with a appreciate local it. local outfitter, and it. I mean, I wasn't expecting to get your wolf perspective, but that was really it's a bonus yeah a bonus <laughs> bonus points bonus. free podcast for y'all <laughs> we have a patreon <laughs> yeah, we, we should i'm just kidding yeah, no thank you i appreciate the opportunity to oh, chat yeah. with you guys and, and head over here so yeah we, we really enjoyed like, it like, man we should have you know like a someone who's got a really good guy perspective